Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten. Today, I'm joined by the CEO of the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, Dr. Morgan Sammons. Throughout his career, Morgan has revolutionized the scope of health service psychology, particularly due to his leadership in the area of prescribing psychology, which is our topic today. As CEO, Morgan is responsible for the management and operations of the National Register, and he represents registrants at local and national psychology meetings, while also serving as a liaison to various multidisciplinary organizations. He is editor-in-chief of the National Register's Journal of Health Service Psychology, and has authored dozens of articles in areas ranging from clinical psychopharmacology to professional issues facing health service psychologists. Morgan previously served as Dean of the California School of Professional Psychology at Alliant International University, as President of APA's Division 55, the Society for Prescribing Psychology, and as Captain in the United States Navy. Morgan, thank you for being here with us today, and welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I'm happy to be talking about a a subject that's uh, near and dear to me. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I don't know if many are going to actually recognize the the intimate kind of role that you played and and key kinds of programs and projects that you participated in, and I'm thrilled to be able to talk with you more about them today. The emergence of health service psychologists prescribing psychotropic medications is not necessarily new to healthcare. We're a few decades deep. And, and many health service psychologists have been affecting care and change by practicing and prescribing medications. But mostly that's been contained in certain federal agencies like the Indian Health Service or the Military Health Service. And nowadays there are a growing number of states like New Mexico, for instance, that have started to allow for psychologists to prescribe certain psychotropic medications. And I'm eager to to dig in today, Morgan, and learn more about this field, some of the background, the training, and where you see this going. But to start, I wonder if we can start from the most fundamental of questions of what this means when health service psychologists have prescriptive privileges. What, What does that mean? Well, what it means basically is that we take our skills that we've learned as doctoral level health service psychologists. And we fundamentally leave those unaltered, but we add a new dimension to those. And that's Mm. the ability to intervene when appropriate with psychotropic medications. We've known, for example, for decades that if all you do is give a patient a medication the data are quite clear that the chances of that patient progressing towards wellness or recovery is vanishingly small. Um, Giving a person medication and no other kind of intervention is pretty much, we can say, about as effective as doing nothing at all. It may have some Mm -hmm. short-term 
benefit to the patient, but those have to be those benefits have to be weighed against the side effects that the patient might experience, mm -hmm. the difficulty starting or stopping a medication. So when we started out doing this in the early 19, well, in the 1990s, let's say, mm -hmm. we didn't understand things quite in those terms. Back then, you'll have to remember that we were in what was called the Prozac era. Prozac right. had been introduced in the 1980s and it, it suddenly emerged as the treatment for mental disorders, particularly anxiety and depression. And there were books about the miracle cures of Prozac offered, et cetera, and a great deal of not only popular, but scientific bias, if you will, that weighed heavily in favor of the benefits of psychotropic medication without considering the benefits of other interventions as well. Uh -huh. So back then in the 90s, if you weren't treating a depressed patient with Prozac, you weren't really doing anything for them mm -hmm. according to the current literature. But now we know that that's different and that wasn't the case. And as the bloom came off of the serotonergic rose, if you will, um, people began to understand that folks made a little bit of recovery, but long-term sustained recovery required other interventions, generally psychotherapeutic or other behavioral approaches. And that's the understanding we have today. And that's why it's so important that a doctoral level psychologist be able to apply not only their assessment, but their therapeutic interventional skills along with the psychotropic medication when the medicine is indicated. Because what the data tell us today is quite clear. And that is that in general, most patients will get better on a combination of psychotherapy and pharmacological intervention if there is an indication for the medication. Otherwise, you start with the psychotherapy first. Right, right. Morgan, I, I, I love that answer, and it, and it helps me segue right to the, that period of time, the early 90s. In preparation for our interview today, I, I took a look at a couple different publications, one that has your name attached to it, and it talks a little bit about the origins of the Department of Defense's Psychopharmacology Demonstration Project, which knowing the government, they love their acronyms. So I think they refer to it as the PDP. And it played an integral role in the formation and, and history seemingly of testing out this idea of having psychologists uh, develop, earn, and practice prescribing. And I'm really curious if you can tell me a little bit more of that. And the reason I want to ask and direct that question to you is because it's my understanding that you were one of the original registrants or, or participants in this project. Well, that's right. Uh, I was one of the first enrollees and the first graduates of the Psychopharmacology Demonstration Project, which formally got off the ground in 1991 at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Um, before I tell you a little bit about the curriculum and, and the challenges we faced, though, I, I want to hit on one point that you raised. This is Please. not necessarily a new idea, 
Mm-hmm. But every time it's come around, it has come around in response to one single factor, and that is meeting unmet patient needs. In the 1970s, actually, there was a psychologist, a man named Dr. Floyd Jennings, attached to the Indian Health Service, who became as far as we know, the first psychologist who was officially authorized to prescribe psychotropic medications. Now, it turns out that he was only prescribed, uh, authorized within the facility where he worked in the IHS. But the reason that he was authorized was then as now, there was a shortage of appropriately trained mental health prescribers could help these people out. In other words, back then, there weren't enough psychiatrists. And Absolutely. And, and Morgan, I, I hate to interrupt, but I, I, I want to join you in a chorus about this, this idea. There have been various clinics and settings that I've worked at as a health service psychologist and regularly telling our patients or clients, if you want to seek psychiatric care, it might take six months. And what a what a hard message that is to deliver. So when I hear you talk about unmet uh, needs and, and a, a desperate need for, for psych, psych, so psychopharmacology and prescription uh, medication as an intervention, I, I, I appreciate that message because, wow, it is a tough one to say. It may take months and months and months to get care. And we know that even today, that's a, a continued and growing problem. In many jurisdictions, there are simply not psychiatric resources to be found. Mm -hmm. We must say, in truth, that psychological resources are also very scarce, and it's incumbent on us as a profession to help increase the number of doctoral-level health service psychologists. But at the same time, we have to recognize that we need to do something urgently to expand the availability of psychotropic medicines that are administered by people who know what they're doing. Because one of the problems, as I'm sure you're aware, with psychotropic medications is frequently, if they're given by, say, for example, a general uh, practitioner who doesn't really have any background or experience in mental disorders, they're not attuned to the nuances of the diagnoses in many instances. And the problem is that once you start a patient on a psychotropic agent, it's very difficult to have that patient stop taking the medicine. So people often end up taking medications that aren't doing them a whole lot of benefit and may actually be doing them not so much good, if not outright harm, but there's nobody to monitor that or to alter it or to stop it. Most people see a general, their, uh, their primary care provider, right? Rarely, maybe once every three months, you might have a follow-up visit if you're lucky. And so it's hard to manage appropriately use of psychotropic medicines in that environment. And that's why health service psychologists who are trained not only in diagnosis and careful assessment, but in monitoring the various symptoms of a disorder as it improves or not over time are probably the most skilled providers of this type of therapy. I wanna come back to this this historical component too. I appreciate the the greater awareness too. No idea that we're looking at, it sounds like around 50 years of talking about psychologists being in 
in a place where they may be able to prescribe and meet a great need, uh, that unmet need. And, and I want to go back to that PDP, the, the Psychopharmacology Demonstration Project, and, and those early 90s. And I'm really curious if you can share a little bit more about your time being at that critical intersection and one of the first kind of systematized projects to bring prescriptive privileges to psychologists. Sure. I mean, it was, uh, it came, as we talked about uh, just a moment ago, out of a perceived need for enhanced um, uh, mental health services within the DOD. Again, few psychiatrists, not enough to meet the need. Um, many, many facilities did not have uh, an adequate complement of psychiatric staff if they had any at all. And so that began uh, a, a congressional legislative initiative to train psychologists to prescribe psychotropics. And that eventually got off the ground, as I said a moment ago, in 1991, after a great deal of deliberation, several uh, high-level groups had been convened of psychologists, military planners, psychiatrists, and others to try and hassle out what an appropriate curriculum would look like. And of course, there were great differences in opinion between the psychiatrists and psychologists on this. The psychiatrists were pretty much insistent that you had to replicate a medical education and a psychiatric residency if you wanted to prescribe psychotropic drugs. Mm-hmm. And the psychologists, of course, were saying, well, no, we don't really think that that's necessary. We're already doctorally trained, licensed mental health providers. Right. We don't think that that additional training is going to enhance our understanding and use of these agents. And indeed, in my experience, it didn't. Um, we ended up in the first group of people in the PDP essentially replicating the first two years of medical school, all the basic science courses. And this was back in the 90s, before they had streamlined the medical curriculum. So these were two years of microbiology and parasitology and immunology and uh, gross anatomy, uh, et cetera. And you might ask how applicable were all of those subjects Mm -hmm. to prescribing psychotropic medications? And the answer is clear, not very. I mean, one aside is that uh, the profession of medicine has understand that more recently too. And in the past decade or so, they have revamped their curriculum to really not get rid of, but integrate those basic science courses in a far more clinical way, such a way that the, the knowledge you earned there made sense and could be integrated into a clinical practice. Back then, we didn't have that. We had those monolithic courses. We had to do those. And we also had to do clinical experience. So um, it was uh, the basic science uh, years of medical school. And then uh, what turned out to be a a year on the inpatient services at Walter Reed. Wow. And it was a fascinating experience. Um, I'm glad I took the courses. I do not believe, however, that most of the knowledge I acquired really shaped my knowledge, my science base in terms of the act of prescribing. What I really learned was sitting down with skilled psychopharmacologists in an inpatient setting, dealing with very severely ill Mm -hmm. individuals and learning the nuances 
not just the science, but the art of prescribing psychotropics. Wow. Wow. It's illuminating to hear you say this too, Morgan. I mean, you basically had two years of medical school when you were at this early intersection of the field. Correct. Yes, we, wow. were, we were enrolled right alongside uh, year one and year two medical students. Um, and we sat in the same classes and took the same courses and dissected the same corpses uh, and, uh, you know, wow. uh, did, did, did that entire experience. And again, you know, while I was uh, fascinating and it, it, you know, one has to question how applicable it was to the end goal of training skilled psychopharmacologists. Mm. I had the luxury of being in a military fellowship. That means that I could do that full time as a military officer, uh, just like I would do any other uh, specialized training in the military. But most psychologists don't have that luxury. And most psychologists who are interested in prescriptive authority have to pursue that independently at the mm -hmm. postdoctoral level. So it's really incumbent on us and I think we've made great strides towards this goal, by the way, that it's really incumbent on us to come up with a curriculum that is absolutely focused on the kind of scientific knowledge and clinical experience that is required to effectively and safely prescribe. Let's talk about that. I love it. Let, let's talk a little bit about today. Today, we're, we're in 2022, I think. And as we are in this year, what does it take nowadays to become a prescribing psychologist? And I'm, I'm guessing, maybe you can help us understand this too, I'm guessing it might differ from the state versus federal level. So your clarity would be helpful. Well, it does differ. Let's start there because it's a little bit confusing. Even though the American Psychological Association has set up a process by which postdoctoral master's programs in psychopharmacology can be designated, i.e., um, an attestation that they meet uh, the, public, the standards for training that have been published by the APA. And these standards have been very carefully thought out over mm -hmm. a long period of time, I will say. So we have these designated training programs, um, but each jurisdiction that authorizes psychologists to prescribe goes through a legislative, not a scientific process at arriving at that enabling legislation. That means that there are significant differences between what each jurisdiction that allows psychologists to prescribe mandates as a component of training. So it's interesting, it's much, it's much of it is derived, as I said, politically, not scientifically, and it's all derived at the individual jurisdictional level. Mm -hmm. now, the individual jurisdictions do pay attention to the APA designation criteria, but they often pay attention also to what psychiatrists have to say about it. And in many respects, the psychiatric stance has not changed. They are still convinced that you still need to complete a medical education and a residency in psychiatry in order to do this safely and effectively. Wow, wow. And so we've got these kind of competing messages here from the, the psychiatry field. I'm, I'm hearing pressure and, and expectation to, to almost have that medical school experience, if not actually have that medical school experience. 
And at the same point, uh, I'm thinking back to this, this topic that we've been, this theme that we've been naming of unmet need. There are only so many slots in a medical school. There are only so many graduates each year in a medical school. And yet we've got a large need out there. And so I wonder if we can exemplify or, or get more specific into like a federal example of what does it take to be a, a, a federal level prescribing health service psychologist nowadays? What, what do you have to go through? Well, let me tell you a little bit about um, what happened with the, the psychopharmacology demonstration project or the PDP. As its title suggests, it was a demonstration project. Its whole purpose was not just to train additional mental health providers to prescribe psychologists, but it was also set up to demonstrate what the most effective way of teaching these people would be. And to that end, as I said, it was highly, highly regulated. And uh, we had an external oversight body um, called the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, which really uh, composed a very eminent and distinguished psychopharmacologists um, who, who provided the oversight um, and input into this training program. That too, unfortunately, took place in the midst of a lot of political um, fighting and uh, opposition. And so, again, we ran into a situation where it wasn't necessarily the science, but the politics that dictated the training. Now, I said a few minutes ago that I had to complete the first two basic science years of medical school and then do a uh, clinical uh, uh, intern, well, a clinical experience in the inpatient service for a year um, to gain my, my education. We realized early on that that first two years was not really a necessary component of safe and effective prescribing. So by the time the demonstration project ended, which it did in 1998, they had significantly cut out a lot of that preliminary education. Not saying they did away with it entirely, but it was certainly much more targeted towards the goal of effective use of psychotropic medications. And that's kind of what we see today. Um, the PDP ended as a demonstration project would in 1998, over 20 years ago, we have to remember. And then what happened after that were various entities began to develop these postdoctoral master's programs in clinical psychopharmacology. And we looked at these basically by looking at the PDP curriculum, looking at um, a lot of medical curriculum and deciding what basic science courses would be necessary to include psychopharmacology, physiology, neuroanatomy, and other things that you really want to know about if you're going to prescribe. Also other aspects of uh, physiological functioning because these are systemic medications. And so you need to know about their ramifications, other common disease states, et cetera, that, um, that taking a psychotropic medication might affect. So what we came up with um, and, and what wound up in the APA designation criteria was a program which was about two years in duration that a licensed provider who was already engaged in a busy clinical practice could take. Now it's quite a challenge and not very many people have done it, a couple of thousand, um, but 
um, they had to balance their work with their weekends and evenings being taken up in instruction. They had to find clinical supervisors who could teach them um, how these drugs looked in clinical practice, which is the crucible in which you learn uh, effective prescribing. When you're working with the patient directly, that's the, that's the most effective way of learning how to use these, these agents. And we came up with the curriculums about two years in duration, involving about half of that is a didactic experience and about a half of it, a little more, in most instances is a clinical experience, highly supervised by people who are ideally psychiatrists with a lot of experience doing this, but other, other uh, providers who are enabled to prescribe psychotropic medications as well. As we talk about medications, even throughout our podcast today, I'm sure listeners are wondering what types of medications are we talking about? What are prescribing psychologists allowed to administer? So that is, again, um, fascinatingly enough, that's frequently a political decision that each individual station ah. makes rather than a scientific decision. Mm -hmm. So I'm not gonna be able to answer the particulars for each jurisdiction, but in general, what we have argued for and what I think is the most, both the most parsimonious and the most uh, effective uh, position on that is that you are authorized to prescribe only from a certain formulary that encompasses drugs that are only designed for the management of mental disorders. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two different, um, two different approaches to that. Some people take a by-drug formulary. In other words, they say, here's a list of 40 drugs that are used to treat depression, psychosis, anxiety, and you can only prescribe these 40 drugs. Mm -hmm. Well, we said, no, that doesn't make a lot of sense because when new drugs come on the market, we don't want to have to go back to the legislature and say, well, right. we should add this drug or that drug. So the most, you know, ideally, the smartest way of doing this is by a category formulary. So you have broad categories of drugs treating various aspects of mental disorders that you use, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anxiolytics, sedative hypnotics, agents used to treat mania, Mm -hmm. mood stabilization, and then a category of adjunctive medications, which are less important now than they used to be. But still, sometimes you need to prescribe something to help, for example, a patient who's taking uh, an antipsychotic and experiences severe constipation. Right, right. So, or if someone is taking an antipsychotic and has some extrapyramidal side effects, some uh, neuromuscular side effects mm -hmm. of the drug you might need to prescribe an adjunctive agent to help manage those symptoms. With newer classes of antidepressants and antipsychotics, the need for those adjunctive agents has declined, but it's still present. And so we have to incorporate those into the overall formulary as well. But basically the formulary approach that is by category covers anxiolytics, antidepressants, antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, and sedative hypnotics. Yeah, I appreciate having that awareness too, that 
we might have started from a place of, well, here's our list. Here are the names. And yet it doesn't necessarily account for all of these other externalities, variables, or new developments as well. Appreciate bit better understanding that the categorization that then informs what we then are allowed to prescribe in this kind of a, a context. As we talk about where we are today at both the state and the federal levels, acknowledging there are some states that, that do allow this even today, I'm very curious where we might be going in the future and how the expansion of this field might look. I wonder if we can go there now. Like, What might the future of prescribing psychology look like? Well, I'm not really sure. It has been an extremely hard fought battle um, and very few issues in health service psychology have attracted as much attention as prescriptive authority um, and as much opposition from organized medicine and organized psychiatry in particular than prescriptive authority. Mm -hmm. um, it, and I think that the future of prescribing psychology really lies in um, the ability of legislatures to recognize that tremendous unmet needs exist in their jurisdictions. And that by allowing appropriately trained psychologists to do this, they can go a considerable distance towards meeting some of those unmet needs. But as we know, Louisiana became the first state, I'm sorry, New Mexico way back in 2002, followed shortly a couple of years later by the state of Louisiana. Then there was a fallow period of, of a decade before the state of Illinois uh, became uh, the third state to authorize psychologists to prescribe. And then the next two states were Idaho and Iowa. And Idaho became, in 2017 was the most recent state to enact legislation. Uh, a couple of states right now, there's always some activity that's going on in state houses about this. A uh, couple of states, um, which I won't name at the moment, but um, I can just let you know that, you know, there's people who are willing to go back to the legislature and try it again. Um, and uh, uh, and it's, we're hoping that some of these legislatures, particularly in areas um, that are perhaps more rural states, uh, which do tend to have the highest need and the, and the smallest distribution of psychiatrists um, are, are, are gonna be willing to look at um, this legislation in a different way. But it's a very, very difficult thing um, because there's so much opposition from uh, organized psychiatry and organized medicine around this. Sadly, there's also some opposition from academic psychology. And um, it's always struck me as being peculiar, if you will, mm -hmm. that, um, that some psychologists, as I said, generally academics, not clinicians, um, think that it's a smart thing to argue against other members of their profession in front of a state legislature. But, uh, that, that's kind of a unique facet that our academic history as psychologists has, has, has brought into this discussion. And so just some of the conflict has not even been interdisciplinary, but rather intra, like within the field too. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Most of it's external, but yeah, you do find some internal opposition. Um, that has, I think, decreased. 
um, we did the first survey of, uh, of psychologists way back in the mid 1990s. And um, the results from that survey, as far as I'm aware, have been pretty consistent um, ever since that time. The majority of other psychologists say not a problem. A minority are opposed to it. And then a smaller minority are, are very opposed to it. Uh -huh. I think that over time, those who are opposed have diminished some, but there is still undoubtedly a minority of psychologists who are very opposed to the acquisition of prescriptive authority. And, and that movement, while uh, I wouldn't say it's terribly active anymore, it still exists. I wanna highlight something. As you talk through it, what I hear is the, the legislative burden that, that we need to go through. For, for any sort of change to occur, for any sort of prescriptive privilege to be uh, allowed. Uh, again, states' rights and all, but I'm also fascinated by another aspect of the pipeline. And I'm curious, as a health service psychologist today in professional practice, it, I, I, I can't imagine taking two years right now. I, I can't imagine because I, I wonder how much that would cost, how much that would would take to, to get that training. And I'm kind of fascinated by it, Morgan. I'm wondering how much does it take? What, how much does it cost to, to get this education? Have, have people estimated this? Um, I don't know the exact costs of today in terms of fiscal outlay, but frankly, that part has never been the impediment. Mm -hmm. When I was Dean at CSPP, I think our postdoctoral masters came in at, um, I, don't quote me exactly on this, but around $15,000. That's not very much money. Um, and that's usually not an impediment. That's, that's a fairly affordable piece. The, the real cost is in the tremendous amount of effort and time that the licensed psychologists already busy in a practice has to devote to doing this. So, you know, balancing this new acquisition of a, a postdoctoral master's with your work obligations, with your family obligations, and personal needs for personal self-care is a tremendously challenging thing to do. And yeah. unfortunately, we have set up the system in such a way that the bulk of this education still needs to be acquired at the postdoctoral level. Right. Now, I think that we can probably effectively intervene, and there are some moves afoot to do this, to incorporate more of this education into the doctoral curriculum, thereby easing the burden on those who want to go ahead and do the postdoctoral specialization in psychopharmacology. Absolutely. I believe yeah. that that would be a very smart move. I think it would enhance graduate education in general. And I think it would also, um, um, as I said, assist those who want to acquire this new skill in completing whatever postdoctoral experience they need to in order to be a safe and effective prescriber. Absolutely, yeah. It sounds like that would meaningfully change the trajectory and the possibilities 
for providers who are in training and um, thinking about this option for themselves. The yeah. last question I want to ask you before we wrap up for, for today, as a psychologist, as a health service psychologist today, without prescriptive privileges, I've, I've gotten used to this is what talk therapy looks like. This is what our process looks like. And I'm kind of curious, especially given your experiences, how gaining prescriptive privileges may or may not change the psychotherapeutic relationship, the, the process. You know, I was asked this question, um, and, and I have to disclose that I was a prescribing psychologist for you know, all my military career. But when I left the military and I became the dean at CSPP, well, in the state of California, psychologists were not and still aren't authorized to prescribe. Um, and I likened that to essentially, if you will, practicing with one arm tied behind my back. Mm. I had gotten so used to being able to incorporate pharmacology into my treatment approach when I needed to, that not having that ability was, 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 was very difficult for me. And it was hard for the patients too. Certainly not by, by no means did the majority of my patients take drugs. I did not prescribe them to everybody I saw, even though a lot of people were referring patients to me specifically for pharmacotherapy because I was a prescribing psychologist. But as a psychologist, you learn which patients are going to benefit from pharmacological interventions and which aren't. And you make that decision accordingly. And you benefit so much the patient to have the same provider do that and integrate that into an entire course of care that it's unimaginable to me to have to go back to the old system of referring to uh, another provider just for the medication, right. even though it's a provider I trust. You know, it's just, it's not efficient. It doesn't do the patient any good. And it takes away from the continuity of care. Now, when you're a prescribing psychologist, does it change things for the worse? Sometimes it does. You're gonna have patients who are drug-seeking patients, mm. people who want to take a psychostimulant because they like its effects rather than because they have a demonstrable condition like ADHD that requires psychostimulant treatment or patients who are um, habituated to benzodiazepines or other medications. So you have to learn to manage those patients' expectations, which is manageable, but at the same time, also learning to manage the expectations of patients who say, I'm, take, I'm, I'm doing you know, the things I need to in psychotherapy. I think something else may assist me. And being able to address that patient in a holistic way and, 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 and take care of all their needs by one person is, is to me the best uh, use of prescribing psychologists and where you see the greatest patient benefit accrue. Yeah, yeah, I hear the, the efficiency, the accessibility, the ability really for someone to, to get the care they need in a timely manner. 
especially when they're talking with someone um, and that developing yeah. an in-depth relationship like that. Morgan. Yeah, yeah just if I could, just one other yeah. quick uh, comment. You know, as I said a little while ago, if all you do is give a patient medication with no other form of intervention, the data are pretty clear that you're probably not doing very much at all for that patient. If you combine medication with effective psychological or behavioral intervention, then you optimize the chances of recovery for that patient. And that is best accomplished by having a single provider mm -hmm. implement that treatment regimen. Morgan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. I feel like I learned so much talking to you about the history, the, the context of which we find RxP today and thinking about where does this go next and what will facilitate and what might be some of the barriers to that change. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, Sam, thank you very much for having me on. I love your podcasts and I'm very flattered that you chose to interview me today <laughs> and um, we look forward to um, hearing what comes next. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much, Morgan. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.